session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Delacqui, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-4410555. So I wasn't here Monday, um, so I'll do the book review today. But before I do that, the book of the week for this week is Permission to Feel by Mark Brackett. Permission to Feel, Unlocking the Power of Emotions to Help Our Kids, Ourselves, and Our Society Thrive. Uh, if you listen to me on the show, you could see that that title was appealing to me, Permission to Feel. I think it's so important for us to have that permission to feel all of our feelings and our emotions. And when we don't, it gets in the way. And I don't know much else about the study, uh, the book, but the author is the director at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Um, so I thought it would be interesting to see his thoughts on this topic, Permission to Feel. Look forward to reading that and sharing with that uh, next time. The book of the week for this past week that I'll talk about today was Marriageology, the Art and Science of Staying Together by Belinda Luscombe. I'm not sure if I'm saying that last name right, but um, the author is a writer for Time Magazine. She's also written in other publications, but has written about relationships and dating for many years now. And so she wanted to write a book specifically on marriage and staying together. So the subtitle, The Art and Science of Staying Together. Um, and it was actually a really good book. I enjoyed it. She herself is not a therapist or psychologist, but she interviewed lots of researchers, lots of therapists, and even lots of individuals and shares that throughout the book, also with a pretty good sense of humor throughout the book. She sprinkles in um, some funny stories here and there and also shares about her own marriage with someone who she says is so different from herself. Uh, her husband is an architect, which comes up many times throughout the book, and she jokingly talks about how much she's mentioning that. But she mentions how different they are, but that somehow it does work. And so uh, it definitely has a positive um, you could say slant about marriage and staying together and not just in this it, love is good and love is beautiful so we should stay together but that it seems like the research shows that staying together of course in a healthy marriage happy marriage is better than being apart and that it seems like we can try to do things to make that happen and so although the book talks about the art and science of staying together she does make it very clear that staying together and staying happily married is not an easy thing and not something that we should think uh, comes naturally. And I've talked about that many times that being attracted to someone, just like being a parent at times, can feel very natural as far as the desire goes. You want to do it. And so because of that and because we think, well, in nature, people get together and they have kids, at times people will assume, well, relationships, marriage, and parenting are things that just come naturally to us. So you don't need to study them or put time into them or 
get help when it comes to these things. We just know how to do them naturally. And there are some parts of it that might be more instinctual, especially, let's say, for a mother, some of the reactions of the parent. But by no means does it mean that we are just good at it by accident or naturally and that we don't have to put time into it. So she does, throughout the book, emphasize that it takes work, which I very much appreciate that mindset, not that uh, you just find someone and it's easy, especially if it's your soulmate, um, life will be easy. And actually she says there's no such things as, as a soulmate early on, which I totally agree with. And uh, even she talks about how dangerous that myth can be, that when we think there is a soulmate, it comes with certain assumptions like things will be easy. If we find that right person, we won't have to struggle um, and all sorts of other things that actually challenge what it means to be in a good relationship. So being in a relationship is a natural desire, but being good at it or doing it well is definitely not natural, especially as times change and society changes. So she looks at six major topics uh, that that are related to marriage or fault lines, as she calls them, and they all start with F. So the first one is familiarity, then there's fighting, finances, family, fooling around, which she says herself was not the first F word or title she wanted to use for that title, but a more PG version, fooling around. The last one is finding help. And so it was a really great book looking at different aspects of uh, relationships, these six major themes. I'll maybe touch on each one a little bit. So the first one is familiarity, and there's a few ways that familiarity plays a part. One is we do have to get to know each other. Um, and John Gottman, who is one of the leading researchers when it comes to marital uh, research. she He talks about how uh, love maps, actually that's the first principle of, in his making great marriage or making marriage work, is to, to have a very detailed love map and how well you know your partner. So we do want to know our partners very well. But she also touches upon this very important theme that sometimes when we get to know each other too well or we think we know each other so well, it can take away from feelings of desire or passion and lead to feelings of boredom. Um, but she does mention research by or work by Stephen Mitchell, his great book, Can Love Last, that at times we almost choose to be bored uh, because that's easier than really realizing we never fully know our partner. She doesn't mention that part of it as much in the book, but other aspects of Stephen Mitchell's work where we can see how sometimes knowing our partner so well or the way we can think we know our partner so well can actually interfere with how strongly we feel about each other. Because when you first get to know someone, part of the excitement is in not knowing them fully yet. Some of that mystery does make it more exciting and interesting, um, but that does not mean that the feeling of passion has to completely go away. So familiarity is important. Another one is fighting. And so that was a very interesting chapter. And something I always say, and she mentions this in the book, is not if you fight, it's how you fight. And actually that you need to fight and have good arguments and discussions and disagreements. If you don't, that is a big problem itself. And if you're never opening up with one another, or if you're never sharing things that bother you about what's happening in the relationship, something's missing. Either you're not that close or you're not being open and honest. And so there's lots of thoughts about how to fight, um, including things like how to use more appropriate communication skills like using I statements and other things like that that at times come off as cheesy and in the therapy 
uh, section of the cha- section about finding help, she talks about how at times it can feel very odd to talk in the ways that a therapist might recommend to you, but they actually do help. And like anything new, a new skill you're trying to learn, it's always going to feel unnatural and odd at first, but you can get more accustomed to it. So um, that was a, a interesting chapter about um, fighting. And one important point for some couples is a lot of times fights happen in the car. I think it's because you have some time that you're together. You obviously can't leave. So you're just stuck there talking. Sometimes even people think it could be a good time to talk. Let's talk about something because we have a long drive. I've even thought that at times. Um, but she mentions in the book that there's some research showing it's not a good way to do it. First of all, one person should be at least partially distracted and that they're paying attention to the road and paying attention to driving. So they're not going to be fully there and that's not good. Second, although this can make it easier at times to have certain uncomfortable conversations that people don't want to have, um, it's not good to uh, be talking or having this kind of serious conversation when you can't look at each other with complete eye contact. So again, one person should be focusing on the road because they're driving. And so you can't really be looking at each other the way you really want to, to have a very good conversation where you can really see each other and understand each other. Another interesting point was that we don't see as well from our peripheral vision, which that makes sense. But related to that, we tend to think of things that we see in our periphery that means that kind of on the sides, as more of a threat than things we see directly or we feel more threatened by them. So in that sense, if your partner is to your side the way it is when you're sitting side by side driving, they're going to feel more threatening to you. And maybe this comes back to our um, evolutionary uh, way of looking at things. We could say that it's because you have to be aware of the threats from the side that you couldn't quite see. If something's in front of you, you're less threatened by it, but you're more scared of the things that are sneaking up on you. So your partner might even feel more threatening to you just because of the way you're positioned. So that was interesting to me that fighting in the car, as much as we think uh, could be a good time and we have some time to talk, maybe it's not a good time to have that type of an intense argument. It's actually better to have it when you can actually be face to face. The next section was on finances, and finances is either the first or the second most common reason why people fight. In most couples, it's the most common, but I think in step families, actually, uh, the kids becomes the most common fighting issue. I think she mentioned that as a sentence, but my guess is when there's stepfathers and stepmothers and stepkids, things get even more complicated and how to parent and co-parent and all of that. Um, But finances almost always is an issue, and like lots of things... It's not just that there's one way to do uh, finances as far as separate accounts, joint accounts, but both people have to be okay with the situation. It has to make some kind of sense to you. Lots of people have um, two bank accounts and a third one that's a, a joint account. They have their unique ones, their own. Some prefer to have just one account for everything, and there isn't just a black and white. But as she mentions, money isn't just about money. Uh, money is about issues related to even fear of control, of being alone, of not having enough of something. So it brings up really intense issues for most people. And also most people are going to bring their unique experience with money. Everyone brings their unique experience with money as far as how it was in their family and how they experienced it into their relationship. And this is always one of the things that couples have to deal with is that they're bringing two different Um, ways of talking, communicating, ways of dealing with things, ways of feeling about things, and trying to now create a family together. 
And that challenge is always going to be one that they have to navigate together. So you might have very different experiences when it comes to money. For some people, they want to be more frugal. For others, they want to be with someone who they want to be more uh, spending and not worry so much about spending. And so that itself can lead to lots of issues, not just because money is this material thing that itself has so much value, but it's associated with so many other things. So that, that was also an interesting chapter about how um, a couple together can deal with the challenges of figuring out finances together. Uh, the next one was family. And so there was a big portion on that about having kids and how it tends to lead to a dip in marital satisfaction, the stress and pressure and sleep deprivation that comes with having kids, as amazing as they are, uh, makes it so that couples lots of times have uh, a lot more fights and things in those early times of having kids. Um, but I thought some of the advice was really important on that, including one that I try to give parents, which is that even though you have kids and they're going to be a priority in a certain way, make sure you don't lose sight of each other. Or something I tell couples is that even when you're having a child, remember that your marriage, your relationship together, that is like the first child you guys have before you have any children. And like any child that needs time, attention has to be taken care of, and you can't neglect it. If you neglect it, it can die. And that's often what parents do or couples do. They have kids and no longer is it about them at all, or there's no existence of them as a couple. The only thing they are is the parents of these kids or kid, and they lose sight completely of each other. And that has huge consequences, um, including how the marriage goes during the time that the children are there, but also when the kids leave. And some of these ne empty nest feelings that parents can have can be related to this, that they are not feeling so connected to one another. There's not much of a relationship there. And so when the kids are gone, there's not much there and they can feel very empty and feel like even they want to go have a meal together and it feels awkward without the kids around or without talking about the kids. So it can be so important as a couple to have moments and memories and experiences that you create together and to keep in mind that your relationship with your partner has to be a priority. It can't be something that you just put on the back burner and only become parents to these kids. And I thought that was very interesting. And also there was some talk about in-laws, which for all families, but especially Iranian families, that can be very important. Um, but I thought the parts on parenting were very interesting about how to try to work together as a team. And even how, as much as your kids are these incredibly special things to you, oftentimes you want to have that mindset that your partner is special to you in a different way, that you still have that connection with your husband or your wife that is unique, that is actually in some ways greater than the ones you have with your kids, which is a different type of relationship. And this is at times controversial. She cites some people who have talked about this, how they say they actually love their kids but are in love with their spouse and that, that this is a different love or even a stronger love in some ways. And they will oftentimes get a very negative reaction from people or it can be very controversial. I thought that was quite interesting. Now, I want to talk about the rest of the book and because there was a lot in it and I wanted to discuss it in more detail, I'll take another segment on that. So I'm discussing the book Marriageology, The Art and Science of Staying Together by Belinda Luscombe. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book Marriageology, The Art and Science of Staying Together by Belinda Luscombe. And as I mentioned, she 
separates the book into essentially six different major issues or factors or fault lines, as she calls them, that uh, can fracture contemporary marriages. So I talked about familiarity and fighting, finances, and then family. And as I mentioned, family includes both parenting and becoming parents and the big effects this can have on the relationship, but also dealing with in-laws and, and, and things like that, which could be a big challenge. And I'm sure many people listening have unfortunately had experiences with that. Um, the next one she talks about is fooling around. And as I said, she said that she wanted to have a different title for that, but it was not such a PG word to talk about fooling around. But sex is such an important part of marriages and one that does not get a lot of attention. It gets a lot of attention as in people liked um, uh, people to have articles about it or they like to talk about it but within couples you don't see a lot of times conversation so you'll see couples who have been married for many years and they've never once discussed their sex life which can be true in almost all couples but especially if you add to it certain cultures like the iranian culture where things like sex are considered taboo and you don't talk about it especially at times it could be not okay for a woman to talk about it and and there's also different gender norms and rules and things that come up with that as well and so very often sex is this thing that's so important but yet not talked about or we feel taboo or it's not allowed to be talked about and so a very important thing is to break that taboo. Uh, actually, in the book, she talks about the work of a certain um, psychologist who has clients discuss their sex in great detail. And so it's to show them that it's okay to talk about sex and we need to talk about sex. And so couples have to be willing to talk about their sex life and to each other. And so like finances and in a different way, uh, sex can bring up a lot of issues related to attractiveness, which can be related to self-worth, about feeling good about ourselves, about feeling like, uh, should we be allowed to uh, feel good? Am I good? Am I attractive? Does my partner want someone else? All sorts of different things that can uh, bring up issues of insecurity for couples that makes them more likely to want to avoid this topic or if i'm not happy with the sex life and i tell my partner will he or she then think i'm not happy with them at all and and it leads to some big fight or is it something we can recover um, or the myth starts to pop up again is sex something that just we should have quote-unquote chemistry and it should be good and, and if not that means something's wrong with us um, which is not the case. Sex is one of those things that it's not always going to be perfect. You're not always going to have every encounter be good, or you're not going to always know each other and understand each other without communicating, but it's so important to do that. So that was just one big theme throughout is that we need to talk about this topic. And if you don't talk about it, like most things, it's not just going to get better by its own. And it's very good and can be relieving to hear that it's not supposed to just be good on its own without any work or help or that it doesn't mean that something is wrong with you or your partner or your partnership if your sex is not good from the beginning. It's just part of being uh, in a relationship and dealing with the different complications that come with that. And sex is a very complicated issue to deal with. So there's a lot of very interesting points on that, of opening that conversation. And so if you're in a relationship, it's something just to keep in mind for yourself. Don't think you can't bring it up. Don't think it's something really bad or wrong. And unfortunately, the thing with taboo topics is the more we avoid them, the bigger they become like an elephant in the room, and that way the scarier it is to bring it up. So if you haven't talked about sex and you've been married seven years, 
now it can feel very scary because you feel like, okay, that makes it seem so big if I bring it up because we've never talked about it. And so how can I do that? Can I? And most people just choose not to, which is very unfortunate, but unfortunately a reality for many people. So we want to try to break that taboo and realize that it's not something that we should avoid, we have to avoid, um, and that our partner will feel bad if we do uh, bring it up. Now, related to this is something I brought up in talking about familiarity, which is that we often think that, um, or we hear that you're going to just, you know, have a dip in passion. And if you're married for a long time, you can't have good sex anymore. It's just how it is. And of course, there is some of this that does happen for many people. Desire does get amplified by not knowing the unknown helps make people more excited. And so what I was talking about before, there's a way that unfortunately intimacy and passion can feel like at a paradox. The more you know someone in an emotional way and the closer you are at times, the less you can feel excited about them and the passion can become less. And this is why sometimes when we just think of someone new or different, we sometimes think there's so much more passion there, which often can lead to people um, wanting to have an affair or thinking that the affair relationship is something so good because there's this feeling that, okay, because I feel this passion for this person, it's because they're so great, there's so much attraction, but oftentimes it's actually just because there's someone new. And also when you add the forbidden aspect to it, that makes you think even more that it's something great when really it could just be those things. And this is why actually very often when people who have an affair end up being with that person they had an affair with, um, I think one psychologist she talked to said they think about 10% of the time it leads to uh, a lasting relationship, that affair relationship. But when people are in the midst of it, they think, oh, there's so much passion here. I feel something for this person I never felt for my partner, which shows how strong it is, which shows how good of a match we are. But we have to be aware of the dynamics that are in play when it comes to passion, that it's not just about if you feel it for someone, it's because you and them are so good. There's so many other factors that can affect that. But to me, this was such an important topic because sex is not talked about. People do assume either it should be good or something's wrong with you or your partner when that is not the case at all. And uh, we have to open up those conversations and be okay to talk to our partner about them, make it okay, and also not take it as personally. It can be very hard not to take it personally, but if you feel like your partner uh, there's something in the sex life that's not quite right, you can bring it up and it doesn't mean something is wrong with you. So don't take it personally that something is wrong if you uh, don't feel good or your partner doesn't feel so good in the sex life. Now, another issue she brought up related to sex is the proliferation of pornography and how common it is for people to see pornography and how that can affect the ways that people relate to each other sexually in various ways. Uh, one, it could change our expectations, both of our partner and even of ourselves, that we think our performance has to be in a certain way or that we are supposed to look a certain way or uh, we are supposed to have certain experiences that are had in the uh, pornography or the experiences that are there. So these things can have a negative effect because people start to expect certain things or they start to think about sex in a way that can be unrealistic and they can actually choose that uh, or think that's what they should have when really it's not the case. And related to that, oftentimes people think, well, I like, let's say, pornography or fantasies because 
it's so much more exciting than my actual sex life with my partner. And Stephen Mitchell talks about this in that book, Can Love Last, that in fantasies, as much as we think it's exciting because it's so out there and crazy and anything can happen, um, really that's not what's going on. Because when you have a fantasy or if you're watching pornography, it's in your control. And so as much as we think it's because of how crazy and out there it is, it's actually more because of the fact that we have the control, that safety. There's so much anxiety that can come up if we're so worried about performance or worried about being attractive or worried about our partner's responses that in a real sexual encounter will come up that don't ever come up in a fantasy. So as much as we think it's because of the excitement and because of the anything can happen feeling, oftentimes what we actually enjoy about pornography or about fantasies is that we do have complete control over what is happening. But overall, that message that we should be talking about our sex life and communicating and working on it, I think was a very good one. Uh, that was very um, prevalent in that chapter. And the last chapter is about finding help. And how she talks about her own experience, actually, with her husband going to couples therapy and how it was very helpful for them and how she at first was surprised that her husband was so unhappy in the marriage and was considering therapy or even actually had already found a therapist, um, but that eventually it was very helpful for them. And so I thought it was interesting that she shared that experience. And so she says, like, like anything, it's not that therapy is going to help everyone um, and that therapy will always help a relationship, but... Very often, a bad relationship won't get better without therapy, or almost very rarely will a therapy uh, relationship get better without therapy. So uh, it's not that therapy will always work. There's no type of treatment, no type of medication that works for everyone every time. But we know that it's a thing that can be very helpful. And so hopefully people will think about that and will we'll, we'll actually seek out therapy. Um, she talks about John Gottman, who I forgot the exact number, for six years, I think. He says that he thinks couples wait six or seven years uh, before they go get therapy. Like there's a problem and they have issues and they wait six or seven years before they finally go and get help. And so um, that's very interesting. And I think, I don't know about the exact number of years, but it does seem very often the case that people wait way too long to get help because of the stigmas that we have about um, needing help, the stigmas we have about needing someone to help us or that it means we're crazy or bad. And in the context of relationships, oftentimes people have these feelings that it means um, something's wrong with them or they need someone else's advice to help them and they don't seek help, which is very unfortunate. So I hope people will think about going to therapy as this very okay thing it's not something that we should be afraid of in general when it comes to individual therapy but as couples as well and this goes back to some of the myths we bring into relationships that everything should be natural and easy if we really love each other that if you're in love you're going to have a good relationship together just without trying or without help if something is wrong or this is actually where the soulmate myth becomes so dangerous that if okay you're my soulmate why would we ever need to get help why would we ever need someone if we're right for each other if god picked us for each other then it should be easy and that's just not true there's no such thing as just soulmates where everything is going to come easy to you it's always going to be work and taking a step back from that premarital counseling is so important i think she shared that in new zealand uh, and there's been def different areas that have tried this coming up with offering free either couples therapy or premarital counseling and unfortunately many people don't take it and so premarital therapy is a very uh, 
good thing, in my opinion, that can help people strengthen their marriage. A lot of people think, well, if I'm already needing help before we've even started the marriage, doesn't that mean we're just really messed up? Or is not a very depressing thought if you already need help? But the point is, it's not about you just need help. It's like anything where you're trying to strengthen it before problems arise. You're not trying to say the relationship is so bad it needs help. You're saying that we want to strengthen this just like you go see a dentist, not just when you have cavities and pain, but also when you're trying to just check on the health, see if there's any issues, and to figure out if there's ways that you can strengthen the marriage. The same thing happens in premarital counseling. You learn about the issues you have. You learn about how you can um, communicate better, what might become issues in the future, and you can work on those things, which is very good. So we should not be afraid of therapy in general. It doesn't mean you're crazy. It doesn't mean you're bad. And especially we should not be afraid of premarital therapy or marriage therapy once you are having some issues because it can be very helpful and has been very helpful for many people. But the first step is we have to have a vulnerability to ask for help. And so I've worked with a lot of families um, or individuals. They'll come to therapy and they say, um, uh, I'm having issues with my partner. And more often it's a woman coming in because women seek help more than men do. And the woman will say, we're having all these issues. And I say, you know, marital therapy might be good. And they'll say, well, my husband says, you have the problems. Uh, I don't need any help. You go fix yourself and our marriage will be okay. It's a very common uh, reaction you get. And it comes with many things of who is someone else to tell us how to help our marriage. How am I going to open up with someone and think that they're going to know us better than I do? We have to figure it out ourselves and a bunch of different things. But a lot of it has to come down to the myths we have about relationships, the myths we have about uh, mental health, and also the stigmas we have about going to therapy, that it means you're crazy or bad or a whole bunch of other things. And because of that, I shouldn't go because if I do go, it's admitting that I'm crazy, which is not true. So I'm glad that one of the chapters was about finding help. And especially she says, after an affair, many relationships don't survive. But however, if you do want to survive, and many do, you almost always are going to need the help of a therapist. It's not going to happen on its own. So it can be helpful. Sometimes you'll never recover. Again, it's like a cancer that's hit the relationship, but it doesn't mean um, that has to be the end of the relationship, just like people can get cancer and of course survive. You can The relationship can have one and survive as well. So don't be afraid to seek help whether it's individually or also when it comes to couples therapy. And this actually is a great book, I think, if for couples or anyone in general to read about thinking about marriage, uh, thinking about the prospects of what it's like to get married. But also, if you are married, it can have some helpful uh, nuggets here and there about things you might recognize in yourself and things you can try. There wasn't so many directives as far as do this or don't do that so directly, but a lot of issues are brought up in ways that will make you think about your relationships, some of the research that's related to different topics of being in a long-term relationship. So I'd highly recommend the book to really anyone, but especially if you're in a relationship or thinking about being in a long-term relationship. It's Marriageology, the Art and Science of Staying Together by Belinda Luscombe. All right, we've reached another commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Farid. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for calling. Uh, thanks for taking my, my call. My pleasure. Um, uh, so I have a question. I have a four-and-a-half-year-old boy. 
I'm a 17-month-old girl. Mm -hmm. So my question is about my boy, um, who is a very smart, um, alert, curious, asks tons of questions about anything <laughs> you tell him mm -hmm. until he feels comfortable. And sometimes that you know, can get annoying when you have tons of other things to get to. But um, you try to look at it as a positive way. Um, but from what I hear from teacher, he's... He's okay at school and everything, but he asks him, you know, the teacher as well, on the question until he feels comfortable about things. He does tend to get anxious about, like, um, as quick when they, they have a fire drill at school and when they explain, you know, about the earthquake and what what's going to happen, in, um, you know, in an earthquake. So he gets anxious that, you know, the building mm -hmm. is going to collapse. He keeps asking, is, are the trees going to fall over, you know, is, is mm. the building going to come down? Like, uh, is this going to happen to us? You know, all these questions that I'm having a hard time. I don't want to scare him more, but yeah. at the same time, I don't want to give him, you know, um, wrong answer or not confirm, like, these things that's going to happen. So I just want to know how, what is the best, you know, yeah. uh, method to kind of, like, handle this. And recently, I also asked about death, uh, and that he, he, got, he keeps saying, I don't want to die. When I asked his teacher, I, we haven't talked about this at home. I mean, thankfully, we haven't had any close family members or grandparents, and they're all alive. And I mean, I'm afraid that's gonna, you know, one day he's gonna face that, unfortunately. Yeah. But, um, so we haven't spoken about any of these. But at school, looks like they were watching. Kids were talking about like a Frozen movie. I think it looks like and I haven't watched it, but um, the mom passed away or something, mm -hmm. so they were kind of talking about all this. So that's when he started learning about death and, you know, that and he gets very, you know, very upset about this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's tough. I mean, even when you were talking about the way, obviously, curiosity, all kids have that, all people have that, although we lose it sometimes because of the way he gets responded to, but he, he he's curious, which is good, but there was a way you talked about his curiosity that had like an anxiety to it, like he was um, trying to be reassured and be calmed down. And so, yeah. and I could see how he's asking until he feels calm. And unfortunately he won't always feel calm because some things in life are uncertain and he's looking for certainty in everything, which we all do in different ways, but he wants that just feel like everything's okay. So with things you can, especially you want to make him feel more reassured, make him feel calm about whatever you can. But if you're right that he's going to face things in life where he sometimes won't be able to have that reassurance fully that everything is okay because everything doesn't always go okay. And sometimes we don't know for sure. Now, when it comes to things like death, you don't have to have a philosophical discussion or, you know, anyone could die at any time or we might die, you might die. Those things he doesn't need to be thinking about. So you can reassure him that he's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You know, his dad's going to be okay. Um, but it does seem like you, you have an anxious child on your hands who might have some, this is very much just in a speculative way of something to be aware of an almost OCD like way of looking at things possibly. And so yeah. we have to be aware that he might have that now within your family and, and his father's family. Is there any anxiety OCD in there? Well, I, I kind of have that. I, there are some areas that I'm a little, you know, I kind of see my OCD or okay. I get anxious about things. Yeah. But, so I mean, could very well, you know, get it from me. But, um, so how do you I mean, see it in yourself? I feel like yeah, he's okay, but but when I look at him, there are times I can see his, you know, he, his, this anxiety in him, and that's yeah. what I, 
I don't know if I should see a doctor or is it too early for a forum? I mean, you, you know? it might be too early. You know, you could. I mean, if you do anything, it's going to be kind of like play therapy and it could be helpful, but it's not like, um, you know, the thing is with the way you describe him, it's not like you're going to make him a non-anxious child. You know, he's always going to have some anxiety mm-hmm. at least. So we have to be ready for that. That's kind of how he is. We want to help him, of course. We're not saying we just accept that and stop caring, but we we are aware that we're not going to make him not anxious at all. So we're just going to help him right. deal with that. And even you know, having a, a baby brother probably didn't help that that instability for him. For someone like him, exactly. he's going to be more sensitive to that. So we're aware that that's going to going to affect him too. And those changes in the home are just going to affect him a little bit more. But it's one thing just to keep in mind that okay, he is anxious. That's part of how he is. And especially what I always try to direct parents towards is we want to make sure we don't make him feel bad for being anxious. It's not something that he's trying to be difficult or trying to worry you or annoy you or whatever it might be. Even you said they can be annoying sometimes as questions. I understand, but we don't want to give him a bad feeling for being how he is because he's not trying to worry it's not pleasant for him either you know and so you because you are saying you experience some ocd like feelings you probably can relate to that you know what he's feeling or how unpleasant it is and this is where another interesting dynamic comes into play so sometimes obviously when a kid is like a parent the parent can feel a good feeling about that and like that about them even sometimes might favor that kid over the other child However, when a child is like us in a way that we actually don't like about ourselves mm-hmm. or don't feel good about, we can make the kid feel even worse about that because in a way we're projecting from ourselves. So we're, you know, it's something about yourself you might not like and then you see it in him and they go, oh, why are you so anxious? Why do you worry about stuff? Or why do you make things bigger than they need to be? You know, that kind of a feeling. And you really want to make sure you don't give him that, that feeling, which you might do because of how you might feel towards your own anxiety and that's what i'd say is very important for you to keep in mind yeah i try always to come i mean i've read and listened to a lot of you know these topics i try to be you know kind of you know kind of what is the word um uh, affirmation not not the affirmation but um recognizing you know and kind of confirm his uh feelings mm-hmm. and you know, validate I maybe i understand you're upset or yeah. worried and all that but, you know, the thing is, he keeps questioning. So he's like, he, I don't know how to explain me. When he wants, he says, I don't want to die. What happens when we die? And then he's like, are we going to go, you know, God or Lord? That These are the words hmm. that I guess he picks up at school. And I kind of don't know. And he's kind of now afraid of God because he thinks that, it's, you know, he's going to take him away or it, it somehow feels not so good about God. So and I, hmm. I mean, we haven't really talked about all that, even though... You believe in, you know, uh, life after death, but you haven't opened anything up, as you know, and knowing he's very sensitive, I, I thought it's too soon for all this, but he listens, and the teacher said when he's, these are going in his mind, and he's always thinking and analyzing and overthinking, so you might want to open up and talk about it uh, at home, so, because he's going to talk about it, you know, anyway, think about it anyway, so it's maybe better to go over these with him, and he even asked, if I die, then is God going to fix me? You know, that's hmm. I was like... Wait, I, I he said, is God going to do what? Is God going to fix us? Oh, fix. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Fixing. Fix. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's worried about these things that, of course, we understand they're scary things. And even as we get older, we have like existential crises about these things because they're scary. And it's hard to explain them to him because there's no way to get him completely calm. I wouldn't get into too much uh, of the philosophical. You just want to say something that makes him feel okay. But he's, you know, the thing with children who have or people in general have some level of OCD or anxiety, a lot of times they're more intelligent. They think about things in a deeper way. They're more analytic. And so you have to be careful. And the thing with actually a child like him is you have to be aware that he, if you say something, even in passing, even be aware of some of the words you use, like, oh, like, you know, people like parents, oh, gosh, I'm so stupid or uh, you know, Persians might say or some kind of word or phrases that have a negative actually mean mm-hmm. something, he might take it literally sometimes, you know? So he might say, does yeah. mommy want to die or something like that? Or, uh, you know, you say, oh, I'm going to kill you for doing that. And then he might actually think, mm-hmm. wait, does daddy want to kill mommy or does mommy want to kill that yeah. person, you know? So you have to be aware that he's going to hear those things differently uh, or he might take them literally. So be aware of some of the, the words yeah. and phrases you use around him because you might not realize yeah. that he's taking it literally, which is very scary. Uh, where you might just yeah. meet it in a joking way or, a, you know, a playful way. So yeah, that's another totally. thing to be aware of. I'm really mindful of that. But, you know, the thing is, that's cool. It's totally out of my control. And yeah. that's when it's after the class, so when, you know, the class is done in session, they're having lunches and snacks. And he actually listens to other people's conversations mm-hmm. as well. So that's why even the teacher cannot pick these things up because um, he's busy, they're having lunch, and they're doing their things. So it's just, um, and I was just reading up about this, you know, he has to talk about, you know, death to the kids. I don't know if you agree with this, but I was thinking to tell him, oh, you know, at some point, I don't even know what, I don't want to say when he get older, but because he has a, you know, grandparents that they're older, and he always, you know, worries that, he keeps asking, are you young, is he old, why is he fair, you know, why? So I, I, I don't want him to get anxious about this, but, you know. Yeah. I was thinking to maybe bring up, like, when we get older, very old, you know, our bodies start not to function the way they are. My hands may not be, you know, be, I will not be able to move my hands around. So it's kind of like started talking to him like this, but then he started, oh, I, I want my hands to move, you know. I Is God going to fix this then mm. if this happens? You know, I, I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I think you're going to you're going to probably put more worries in his head than make him understand it, you know, so I don't know if it's going to be good to get into the details of as you get older, this happens to your body aging, he's going to start worrying about you guys and what happens. I understand it's the reality. And are you saying this because you want to prepare him for when, let's say, grandparents die? Mm -hmm. Is that why you're saying that? Uh, no, in general, when he asks and he thinks about this, I just want to have, because I don't know if I should just keep, when I keep saying you're okay, he, he doesn't take it for an answer, you yeah. know. He wants a more solid answer. Well, you know, the the, the thing that's, cons- you know, in general, as human beings, we over-worry. That's just like, and it maybe helps us survive. Like, if there's a 1% chance something can happen, it's probably better for us to worry about it 50% so that we protect ourselves so that 1% doesn't happen. And so with people with anxiety and OCD, this is even amplified more. So if you say, oh, there's a one in a million chance a plane is going to crash, like, wait, so it's possible? 
So that right. means it can happen. So they don't hear yeah. one in a million. And we even in general, it's hard for us to think about these numbers and one in a million, what that means. And so for them, it just becomes it's possible. So, oh, the, you know, if, like, let's say you told him the chances that a, a baby, like something happens that is so little, then he's like, oh, it can happen. And then he thinks about the bad part and he visualizes and he right. can't stop seeing it. So you want to not get too much into the details of like how bad things can happen because he's going to hear those as a very bad thing. But it's tough because obviously life, things happen. Things are out of our control. There's realities that are are, are difficult to deal with and, and you're going to face those things. And it's just always trying to be aware and like you said, validate his feelings, be aware. Now, you don't want to say if he's worried about something, it means a bad thing can and will happen, but that um, you understand he worries, but that things are okay. And you try to just calm him down, especially at his age, he doesn't need to know about the details and realities of what the bad things are that can happen to him. It's just to him. Yeah. mm -hmm. No, go ahead. Sorry. So I was thinking, even if he keeps asking about it, once in a while he brings this up and he wants to see how I react. You know, the thing, if I say, oh, I know, and so I should keep saying, oh, I understand you're thinking about this and you're worried, are you okay? I should cut it off. I leave it at this. Yeah, I mean, you know, you don't want to, it's another thing too with the, um, it's almost like a thought OCD, thinking OCD, that we don't want to feed into it too much where we say let's, you don't want to, it's tough because you don't want to make him feel annoying or difficult or bad or not let him talk, but you also don't want to feed it too much where you say, okay, let's talk for a long time about uh, these things. Like, and like, we're going to talk for five hours every day. We're just going to have worry time where you come and tell me all your worries and we're just going to only talk about worries because it just makes it more prevalent in his head. So we, we, it's a tough balance that you have to figure out with him where you allow him the space, um, but don't push him to talk about things too much or bring them up in a way that it becomes the focus of everything, you know, and that's going to be very difficult and challenging to do is finding that, but you're going to have a child who's anxious and he's going to be anxious almost you know, a lot of the time. Um, and over time you can look at things, you can do play therapy. It's not a bad idea. Um, keeping in mind that we don't expect huge changes to happen, but it can be helpful to him just to have a space to deal with those things. Mm-hmm. If you're open to it, I don't think it's a bad idea, um, to, to, to be aware of that, but it's very important that we keep in mind that this is something he's always going to have. This is your child. He's unique in this way that he's going to have anxiety. Now we want to make it in a way that hurts him the least and in some way benefits him the most and that he probably thinks and things, thinks about things in a way that's good and different than some people, but we don't uh, ever expect him to not have anxiety. That probably is not possible unless we medicate him heavily, which we don't want to do because then we take away him, you know, so you want to reduce the anxiety and how it hurts him, but not take it away completely because that's not going to happen without something, you know, something negative on the oh. other side. God. Do you think occupational, is occupational therapy the same? Because that's what they usually offer, at, I mean, mm, talk about at this age. Yeah, that's a little bit different. That- that's more about, I mean, doing things. It's not, I don't think it's something, to me, I don't see the benefit for him. I mean, you can try it and see if he wants to do something like that, but I don't know if I really see that. Um yeah. It's, it's more of like a child psychology kind of. Yeah, and therapy. that's very important that if you uh, go to someone who is a therapist, make sure they specialize in child therapy and be ready that more than likely it's going to be like a play therapy. And so oh. that sometimes might seem a little bit for some parents. I say that because they 
they they they say, "Oh, my the therapist just played with my kid." They didn't talk, but at that age, especially your child's age, four and a half, it's only going to be play. Um, but even in older kids, uh, you'll see more play and art, and that's that's the th- the therapy. So don't think the the therapist is wasting your time and money, and you need to go somewhere where they talk about things at that age, at your son's age. Although he talks a lot, and he might, but it's going to be through the play that actually would be better for him. So you can. If you're open to that and you guys want to try that, I, I think it could be good. And also, you'll get a different perspective from the therapist about what's going on. So why not? It's not. It doesn't mean it's kind of. I, I was talking about this in the previous segment. It doesn't mean your son is really sick or bad or crazy. It just means you're seeing that he's having some pain and you want to help him or see if there is some help. And so even if you take yeah. him, you know, you don't explain it like you're going there to work on your anxiety or your fears. It's just like a doctor that plays with you and then let the therapist actually explain. Usually they'll tell you how they're going to talk about the therapy with the kid and, and then just, you know, do that. Sure. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Sure. For thanks for time. calling. Really appreciate My it. pleasure. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thank All right, you. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Going to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, the first two segments I talk about the book Marriageology, The Art and Science of Staying Together by Belinda Luscombe. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying that last name right, uh, but I do recommend that book to couples in general. And, you know, with New Year's coming around, I'll probably do some shows or segments about setting goals. Now, of course, it's not that you can only make a goal for New Year's. And sometimes because of that, people don't like New Year's goals or resolutions. I, first of all, prefer goals than resolutions. Um, And I'll talk more about that probably early in the year about how to set better goals goals or goals that we're more likely to achieve or that can help us achieve them. Um, but it doesn't mean it's bad to set them for New Year's either. So it's not, you have to do them now, but it could be a good time when we're thinking about uh, redoing things or things in our life we want to change. And usually this comes with any kind of new thing that happens if you move or if you do a new job or uh, something new is happening in your life, you very often will think about that. And a new year can be a very good time to do that as well. So um, I thought actually a topic I could talk about related to goals is actually setting goals as a couple together. And so this can be both goals about your relationship, um, about how things are going and how things can be better, but also your own individual goals and how you can help each other to achieve them. So when it comes to the relationship itself, at times, um, some of the things that make a relationship good or make you feel good are harder to quantify. And one thing that we know can help us when it comes to, to setting goals is to make them clear and make them measurable and quantifiable. So for example, even for a personal goal, you could say, I want to get in shape this year, which is a good goal as far as what you want to do, but it's very unclear what that means. First of all, get in shape like what type of shape Uh, do you mean an actual shape or do you mean get fit in a certain way and really within that what does that mean is it about weight or body weight or maybe fitting in a certain uh, dress or pants or clothes or whatever what might that be so you want to make it more detailed and a relationship at times feeling good in the relationship is obviously vague but of course very important or feeling better about communication or how you fight or things like that but they're harder to quantify but doesn't mean you can't do that and even it could be things like make sure we have one date night every two weeks let's say if you're a couple who's married and has kids you might set up quantifiable goals like that um, that can be helpful or make sure we talk at least one hour a week about the relationship 
So set aside a time. We're going to make this our goal that Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We have our coffee together and we talk about what's going on in the relationship, how we're feeling and and things like that. Of course, it's not the only time, but it's specific time we are setting aside. And, And we know that if we leave things to when we have time or when we find the time, we usually don't do it. Things like exercise or community service or reading, for example. If you say, well, I'll do it when I get around to it, you probably won't do it at all. You have to set aside time to it. So that can be important from the relationship side, setting relationship goals. Um, And actually, when I say that relationship goals, it reminds me of the hashtags that we see. So people will post a picture or see a picture or video of a couple and say relationship goals. And usually it's something that looks really good or cute uh, visually, um, but doesn't necessarily mean or translate into a healthy or strong relationship. But really genuine relationship goals are more about things that are between you and your partner, things that make the relationship good, not something that looks good to other people or shows up good. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Your relationship goals should be about you and your partner, how you feel, how he or she feels, and how you guys feel about the relationship, not about how other people feel about your relationship or how other people judge your relationship, that it either looks good or looks fun or looks like you're having a good time. And very often, unfortunately, that's what people do. Oh, look at them. They're traveling. So that's relationship goals. They have to be happy or look at them at that site or they're dressed so nice together. Um, But those things mean very, very little when it comes to actually how it feels to be in the relationship. Now, when it comes to supporting each other in individual goals, this can also be very helpful, but if done correctly, because if you are trying to get involved with your partner's life in a way that they don't feel good about it, actually, you can have a negative effect. But we also know that having someone to keep us accountable, so as we'll call it an accountability partner, um, that can actually be very helpful in achieving your goals. If you tell someone, I want to do this Uh, once a week do this type of thing or by this goal reach by this date reach this goal it can be very helpful to have someone that keeps us accountable or if you say okay i want to work out it's a lot easier if you know someone is going to meet you at the gym and you're going to be letting them down if you don't show up or for me even when it comes to reading the books because i know i have to read it to then talk about it on the show it definitely helps keep me accountable and so this is a third year I've done that and really if it wasn't for the fact that I talk about it on my show I probably would not be so consistent so really all of you are my accountability partners making sure I finish the book and and have really engaged in it enough to be able to talk about it uh, on the show so an accountability partner can be very helpful and there your spouse your partner can be a very good uh, not just your partner in life but partner in this way too to help you to to get on track towards your goals so telling them your goals and writing them out i actually think uh, you know the more you make it real the more you write it out the more detailed it is the better it is just saying you know what i want to work out more next year it's good and your partner can help you and and be you know your accountability partner but it's very vague what that means and what they should do because if you work out once a week does that mean you're doing it or should they push you more or um you know does it mean if you work out every day they should still push you the days you miss it's unclear what you're trying to do so you want to talk about those as specific as possible so you can have a nice sit down together where um, first you probably do some of the work alone write down some of the things that would be goals for you things you want to do and work on and then come up with them in detailed way and actually your partner might be able to help you with that 
but most of it should be on your own. And then you talk about them together. Now, what's very important is when we have these goals, um, we don't make our partner feel bad about whatever it is they're trying to do. That can mean, uh, that could be what I was talking about before, that it might actually get in the way of helping. If your partner feels like you're judged for whatever that issue is, they probably won't want your help. So if you hate that they smoke cigarettes and give them lectures about it, they might not even want you to be part of the process of helping them. And this is why actually um, it's so important to not judge one another in general, but especially when it comes to our loved ones, our husbands, wives, and kids, because when we judge them, they're less likely to be open with us and we are less likely to actually be able to help them. If they think we are judging them, they're not going to want to tell us, let's say, okay, I tried to quit smoking, but I smoked a cigarette today because they're waiting for your lecture and your judgment and making them feel bad. So they're not going to tell you. So you have to be aware that the less judgmental you are, the easier it is for your partner in general to open up to you. And even in this case, when it comes to things like goals, to be able to rely on you to be that support for them. But so you can share your goals with one another, have a sit down. Here are some of my goals for this year, or it doesn't have to be for a year, it could be for whatever week, month, whatever it might be, and, and talk to each other and make it very specific. And I'll talk about setting smart goals, meaning that it's specific, it's measurable, it's attainable, it's realistic or relevant to you, and also has a time based on when it's supposed to be finished or when you're supposed to meet a certain goal or deadline, share them with one another. And then very importantly is to talk about how you would like your partner to support you in this goal. And this is the very important part because when we try to help one another, we want to first of all help in a way that is helpful to our partner. So maybe we do something that actually doesn't help our partner in achieving their goal. So you think, you know what, by preparing meals, that's going to help my partner. But they say, actually, no, they want to do that part themselves because they have a specific diet they want to plan if they're, let's say, trying to lose weight or get in shape. Or we say, oh, I'm going to call and set this up for you. And they say, no, actually, I want to do that or that's actually too much or whatever it might be. And so very often we see people trying to help other people in their goals, but in an intrusive way and without actually listening to what the person wants. So we have to ask for them what they want or how they want us to help them in achieving their goal. We want to see what is it that they want and what is it they don't want because then it can be helpful. Maybe they say, actually, you know what? I want you to wake me up at seven in the morning to go for a walk. And even if I am tired or I say I don't want to wake up, I want you to push me. I want you to actually, I'm giving you that permission now. And this is sometimes called a Ulysses contract or a Ulysses pact, um, named after when Ulysses tied himself to the mast of the ship and told them not to listen to him, his crew, because the sirens would uh, drive them towards the rocks and, and all that. I don't, I'm not saying maybe the whole story correctly, but essentially it's when we make a decision, when we're feeling more rational or we're thinking about our future, knowing that in the moment, the emotions and the comforts and the inertia of doing what's easier in the moment might push us away towards the thing that's better for us in the long term. So I know tomorrow morning, I'm probably going to say I'm tired or want to go back to sleep, but I'm saying, I really want you to wake me up. When you get up to go to work, shake me, make sure I'm awake. Don't let me go back to sleep. I might tell you, let me sleep, but please don't let me sleep because I really want to do this thing. I want to go work out or I want to wake up to do whatever it is and start my day. So in this way, we then give our partner the space to actually be a little bit more, I don't want to say aggressive, but involved and assertive, but in a way we feel good about. And that's very different than if they do it themselves. So if we say, you know what? 
they they want to get in shape. I'm going to force them to wake up tomorrow morning. Now you create a power struggle. You're going to create various different issues that completely changes the dynamic from this supportive we mentality to this you against me. And if anything, the person might even uh, rebel against their own goal because they want to make sure they don't let you win in this power struggle. As strange as that might seem, and we would hope that we're all so rational that we do things in a way that's best for us and best for everyone, but we know that we're not that simple. And when someone pushes us in a way that doesn't feel good, if someone pushes us to do something even we already wanted to do, it makes us less likely to want to do that thing because it doesn't feel good for someone to be forcing us to do something. While on the other hand, if we tell them to push us in a certain way, then it feels like a push up rather than a push down. And that can be very helpful. So you want to be very clear to your partner that let's say, okay, if you see me going for a cigarette, I actually want you to come and take it out of my hand. Let's say if we're out, or if you see me um, asking someone for a cigarette, you can actually come and and do something or whatever it might be. Or if I want to drink less when we're at a party, you can give me a certain nudge that actually encourages me not to do it or even say something about it. So by communicating how your partner can help you, you can create this really big ally um, in someone who knows you very well, probably knows you the best, maybe even better than yourself in some ways, and who also cares about you, loves you, and wants you to achieve your goals because they love you. And so they can be the best support and aid, but only if we really communicate that clearly what we want, what we don't want. And also what can actually be important is to explain why this goal is important to you. First, that'll help you even be more aligned with the goal and realize how important it is and will help in the motivation process, but also allows your partner to know how important that is and will help them want to help you even more. And we'll get them to understand you even better. What does it mean to you to get in shape or to quit smoking or to read more, or to do more of this or more of that? What does that mean to you and who you are and who you want to be, who you aspire to be? This can also be important in helping your partner understand you better and also uh, to be more connected on a deeper level. When you guys are working towards bettering yourselves together, this can be a great way to actually come together as a partnership, as a couple. Because we, of course, want to love and accept our partner as they are and want to make sure they feel that way. We all want to feel that way, that our partner loves and accepts us as we are. But we also want to be someone who contributes to our partner's growth, to them becoming the best version of themselves, to want to be better for our partner and also for our partner to have the opportunity to be the best version of who they are, to love them just for themselves. And so having that can be a beautiful thing, but it does take like all aspects of relationships, some work. We have to talk about it. We have to communicate. We have to see what works and doesn't work. So you might say, okay, I want you to support me in this way. And they're doing it. And after a while, you're like, you know what? The way you're doing it doesn't feel good. Or I thought I like this, but actually I don't. And you have to re- uh, you know, reevaluate how things are going and at times change them. But setting goals together can be a great way to both support one another, which can help you in achieving your goals, but also come together as a couple. All right, going into another commercial break, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. back. So the caller I had today um, brought up her four and a half year old boy and things he was going through. And I don't want to focus on her, of course, because I'm not talking to her anymore, but the topic of going to therapy came up. And so um, I, I thought it was a good opportunity to talk about that because 
I was talking about New Year's goals and things we can do, but sometimes we want to try something new. And for many people, they've never gone to therapy before. And so it's something they are afraid of or have some misgivings about that might make them less likely to go ahead and start. And so I always try to encourage people to go to therapy because of how helpful I know it can be. And also because especially there is such a stigma that keeps people away from seeking help. So as I've mentioned many times before, I go to my own therapy. Oftentimes people say, well, do you have to go as a therapist? And it's not like something you have to do as a psychologist or a therapist uh, that you have to go to your own therapy. Um, when you're in school, you very often or almost always will have to go to some amount of therapy. It's part of most programs that you at least have a therapist that you see, and then they can just sign basically a form saying that you've met the minimum requirement. So as a student, you have to, to become a therapist, but not as actual therapist. But I go because I think it's good and continuing to understand myself better and work on myself and who I am is what drives me to go and to continue going. And that's why I talk about it. So people don't think that it's something we have to be embarrassed about or ashamed of, um, but that we actually should be quite comfortable with this. And I hope we become more and more comfortable. Thankfully, we are moving more towards that. Even sometimes it could be cool to talk about your therapist or going to therapy, um, but we still have a long ways to go. And even actually when we look at confidentiality, so of course, what you talk about in therapy remains confidential between you and the therapist with some very few exceptions that they have to get involved. Uh, but even the fact that you go to therapy has to be confidential. And I think that's very important. And of course, I respect that 100% with clients to not break that confidentiality. But even the way we talk about that at times will show how much we are afraid of getting judged for going to therapy, that we're so scared to say, or we have to be aware that no one finds out we go to therapy. And again, I always respect that for every person I see or anyone who's going to therapy to have that privacy and that confidentiality be respected and be valued. But I also know that it's not that I think it shouldn't be talked about because it's something bad that let's say someone sees me for therapy or sees another therapist for therapy. But there is that embedded in those rules that we're showing that we know how, how difficult or how judged people can feel to talk about going to therapy that they don't want anyone to know. So of course, what we talk about that remains private because we talk about lots of things that are very private and personal. We wouldn't want everyone to know about us. Um, but the fact that we even go, that's part of the stigma that we have contributes to that, that we protect that. Now, again, I think we should protect people's information in that way, but I think it's important to recognize how much we judge going to therapy and, uh, the, the process of seeking out help and how much that unfortunately interferes with people seeking help. As I was saying, John Gottman says in couples, they wait six or seven years before, on average, before they go actually seek marital therapy, before, you know, six or seven years after they've had the problems where they've needed to go in, they're finally going in. So imagine that in a medical context, someone has a medical issue and for six, seven years, they're not getting help. And finally, they're going to get help, which means, first of all, in those six, seven years, there's been so much pain and suffering that maybe could have been reduced or eliminated. And also, as usually is the case, the problem has gone worse over six or seven years. And now maybe it can't be saved or we can't deal with the issue. And it, it leads to something more permanent, like the end of the relationship or whatever the medical analogy might be. So this is a huge concern. We're suffering in silence. We're letting issues grow and we aren't getting the help we need. 
and we're waiting until the issues grow where they might become more catastrophic and have more negative effects. Uh, so to begin with, our mental health is a thing like our medical health that is never going to be perfect, meaning that we all have medical issues, especially as you get older, you'll have at least something, even if you get blood work, there's something not quite right with your body or everything that's going on with your body. And similarly, mentally, we all have issues as well. And so if I talk to someone and they say, I don't have any issues or I'm perfectly fine or I'm perfect or I have no mental health concerns, it doesn't tell me they're so mentally healthy, it just tells me they don't know themselves very well. Um, I didn't get a blood test for a few years, which is not a good idea. I recommend everyone get those regularly, of course. And it wasn't that I there was nothing wrong with my blood. I just didn't know. Thankfully, there wasn't anything too serious, but there could have been. I just wouldn't have known about it. So not knowing doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means you don't know and aren't aware. So it's much better to be aware of our shortcomings when it comes to our mental health than to pretend like they are not there. So everyone has something. Everyone is dealing with some kind of either insecurities, um, uh, painful emotions, painful memories, anxiety, depression, different ways, anger problem. There's so many different ways that we have mental health concerns, just like physically. There's so many things that can go wrong with us, which is also a testament to how right things generally tend to go. But there's so much that can be going on, and the same is true of our mental health. So if you don't think you have any mental health issues, I have news for you. You just don't know them, but you definitely do. Every single person does. Everyone you even look at does. And so I've talked about this before, and I'll just touch on it briefly. When you see someone telling you how perfect their life is, and if you live life like them, or they have all the answers to something, whether it's how to live life, how to do business, how to be in a relationship, and that they know all the answers to make it easy and smooth and perfect, they're trying to sell you something, a product, a book, or they're trying to sell you themselves, because it's not true. Everyone has issues and imperfections and everyone you even look up to and you think well he or she would never have an issue with this or issue with that you never know sometimes you find out that performers that you admire celebrities you admire have anxiety or are shy and you're like how could that person have social anxiety and they're performing in front of so many people uh, or how could they doubt themselves sometimes you see someone they seem so confident and you find out later that they are very insecure of course sometimes arrogance is a very clear sign of that, but even sometimes people that appear confident doesn't mean confidence is something perfect that they never doubted themselves. And you soon learn, wait, that person I thought uh, was perfect, never worried about this thing or that thing, actually turns out they weren't. And so this is actually why I think it's so good that people are being more open about this. Celebrities are sharing their own mental health issues and concerns and talk about going to therapy or being on medication or being hospitalized because it takes away some of that myth of, you know, what you're supposed to be like or the myth that certain people, celebrities or people in Hollywood have everything put together and their lives are so easy and realize that, no, everyone is struggling. Everyone is dealing with things. And even someone you might look up to, um, has issues or definitely someone you look up to has their own issues that they're dealing with. So we have to accept that we have problems, we have pain. And so if we have problem and pain and things we're dealing with, then why wouldn't we get help? Why shouldn't we do something to potentially help us feel better, to, to become a better person for ourselves and the people around us? 
very often mental health issues can harm the person, but a lot of times they also harm the people around us based on what we're dealing with if we don't deal with it. So if you want to pretend like you're perfectly okay, but you're hurting those around you, um, really you're doing them a disservice and getting help is something that will make you a better person both in yourself and also that you'll take care of the ones around you or hurt them less. So recognizing our issues and then recognizing that asking for help doesn't mean we're saying we are weak. Sometimes it's actually the biggest sign of strength if you are willing to ask for help. Um, I just had this example pop into my head and I've been there too and usually men get more blame for this and maybe they do this more but they sometimes don't want to ask for directions because we want to say we know and not that we don't know something and so we feel like it's weak if we ask for directions in that moment but really is that more weak or driving your family around in the wrong direction or in circles not asking for help is that really stronger to do that to your family it's actually not about being stronger it's actually afraid to appear weak so we do something weaker that's more hurtful to those around us so to seek out help uh, is not a sign of weakness it's actually often a sign of strength and a sign that you're taking something seriously. And so for me, when someone seeks out a therapist, it's that they're saying, I'm taking my mental health seriously. It's just like we don't have the stigma of someone has a personal trainer. We think, oh, they're taking their physical health seriously. They're trying to exercise and, and get in shape and get stronger. That's great. Similarly, with mental health, we will oftentimes need someone to help us to work on that, to think we can do it on our own is foolish. To think that we won't need anyone to help us to feel better is not the truth. It's almost always going to require that we get help if we want to get better in that way. And so we have to keep that in mind. It's not a sign of weakness. Also, a lot of times people have this feeling that if they go to a therapist, they're somehow saying, you're good and I'm bad, or you're strong and I'm weak. But really your therapist is just an ally and someone who's helping you to understand yourself better. Even a lot of times people think, well, if you go to therapy, that means uh, they're going to give you all this advice and tell you how to live your life. And I don't need someone to tell me how to live my life, which, first of all, is usually a defense if you're that defensive about taking any advice. But secondly, it shows this myth we have about therapy that you're going to go there and someone tells you, OK, you're going to do this, break up with that person, do this now and change your life in this way, change your job and all these other things. Or you're going to have a question and you say, what should I do? And they're going to say, you should do this and give you direct advice about how to live life and make decisions. And this is almost never the case. At times, of course, therapists will give you some guidance or uh, maybe see something and will bring it to your attention to try to make you aware of what might be happening. But they're not going to be telling you how to make uh, the decisions of your life and how to live your life. First of all, very often we won't know. The therapist doesn't know what's best for you to say they do know. So it's not like, oh, I could help you, but I don't want to. Um, but secondly, sometimes even if you did know the best advice, it's not the most helpful thing to tell someone what to do because they're going to have thousands and maybe even you could say millions of other decisions they have to make in their own life by themselves where you won't be there. And this is actually similar to parents that you won't be there as a parent to make that decision. So you have to let them make that decision. So anyway, this goes back to the fact or the point that don't think that by going to a therapist, you're saying you're somehow saying you need them because they are better than you or they know how to live life better than you or they know how to live your life better than you do. You're still the expert of your life and you're just going somewhere with someone who's going to listen and help you understand yourself better to then live your life better the way that you think is more right.
They're not going to try to make you into something or tell you to become something. They're going to help you become the something you want to be, whatever that might be more. And so what I often talk about uh, when it comes to therapy is that it's not about fixing problems so much as it is about self-awareness, becoming more aware. It's not that you go in and you have anxiety and the therapist fixes you and then you leave. It's that you become more aware of your anxiety, what you tend to do, what you can do. Um, very often the things we deal with or the things we are dealing with in an emotional way don't go away completely. We just become better at dealing with them. Just like if you go to a doctor, a lot of times the issues you have don't just go away. So you have back pain and there's not something they just click. I mean, maybe that actually sounds like a chiropractor when I say click, but there's not something that they just do that makes the back pain go away completely 100% and you never have an issue again. They might help you understand better how to deal with your back pain, what might be causing it, what are ways you can make it less, but probably it won't go away completely. And so similarly, when it comes to your mental health, it's not that there's things that are just going to make your depression disappear and vanish or make your anxiety vanish and you never have to worry about it again, but you'll become more aware of what's going on. So if you haven't tried therapy before, if you've gone before, I highly recommend for people to keep that in mind that it's not something bad or weak to go in and get help or to try to help yourself. You're giving yourself something that you deserve which is that your mental health is important to you. The mental pain you go through hurts and you deserve to get help to help you to feel better, to live a better life. And there's actually nothing wrong with it. Actually, there's a lot right with seeking that kind of help. All right, we're going into our last commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. back. So I was talking before the break about going to therapy, not afraid to get help. And also what I hope is uh, related to that, therapy is a great thing. Of course, I, I do therapy as, as my profession. I love to help people and I try to help people every day with that. And I think it can be very helpful for many people. But another thing that I think is important to keep in mind is that the healing power that we have also in our relationships. So as a therapist, I can provide a definitely a certain type of relationship and care that you cannot provide as an individual because of the difference in the relationship because you're involved with them. But similarly, there's so much that a therapist can't do that family members and loved ones can do. There's so many ways we can support one another and heal one another uh, if we only make the effort and try. And actually, sometimes it might be through therapy that we get some of the guidance to do that. But eventually, it's going to have to be how we are with each other that's going to be the healing. So a lot of times people come to therapy and they are having issues with their mom or dad or they had issues with mom and dad or current people in their life. And it's through those relationships they've been hurt. And that's why actually through therapy, through the relationship, they also can get healed. There is some kind of a connection there. So we get hurt relationally and therapy through the relationship can heal as well. Uh, but very often what I'm doing is I'm talking to someone about issues they had with their, let's say, someone in their past. And if they were able to actually get the apology from that person, if they were able to actually communicate with that person and get the healing they need, it would be much, much faster than what you would do in therapy, where the healing has to happen in a way, individually, they do it with the therapist, but without the help of the person who hurt them. Uh, because if we want to heal from someone that has hurt us, the fastest way to that healing is for that person themselves to apologize to us for how they have hurt us. 
to say, I am sorry for how I've hurt you. That's going to be the quickest path to healing is to actually get the apology and the acknowledgement from the person who has hurt us. This of course, doesn't mean that uh, the pain just goes away and it disappears, but it can be a huge step in helping because when we get hurt, it feels very personal that someone we care about or someone we love has hurt us. And then when they don't even respond to it, when they don't acknowledge the pain and when they don't then try to be part of the healing of that pain, it makes it a lot harder. And even actually it itself can create its own wound. You hurt me and you don't care, or you hurt me and you don't acknowledge it. Uh, or that means I'm bad or I'm weak for feeling this pain and a bunch of different things that come along with it. But the not acknowledging the pain and not acknowledging the damage that has been done itself is causing a lot of pain. And so we can try to heal without that. And oftentimes we don't have that luxury. So of course, uh, I'm not saying this means everyone go call someone and have them apologize to you. Sometimes that actually can be a good thing, but very often you have to be ready that that person might not acknowledge your pain, might make it worse with what they say, and you might end up feeling uh, even worse than you did before you made that call. So I'm not saying it's every time going to be an option, but I'm saying that is the best option if it is available. So if we don't have it, we heal on our own, but we can oftentimes have that with someone if they can give us that. And so here I wanted to talk about that part, that we actually realize how much we can help one another heal by recognizing what we've done that's hurt one another by acknowledging the pain we have caused for someone in our lives. Even if it was from a long time ago, we know that lots of wounds cut very deep and never heal. And if you have never addressed them, if you've never gotten the response from the person who hurt you or from others that you needed, those wounds can be so deep and they can hurt you still, not just because of what happened, but because of how you live your life now. You maybe were hurt by someone decades ago and now it's still affecting the way you create relationships or the types of relationships you form and the ways that you continue to get hurt. It's not just from that way that someone hurts you. It's the ways that you unfortunately will continue to hurt yourself. That wound won't heal and unfortunately will create other wounds along its side. And so this also relates to something in the previous segment about seeking help is that recognizing we've been wrong or we've done something wrong. And this can be a big hit to our ego or our pride to say, you know, maybe I made a mistake there or I know I made a mistake or I know I hurt you. And so because of our inability at times to want to acknowledge wrongdoing, which can be related to a few things, we end up hurting our loved ones even more. So why is it so hard to acknowledge we did something wrong or that we hurt someone? Well, first of all, we very often have a lot of black and white thinking in the ways we feel about everyone, including ourselves. So if I'm a good husband or wife, a good mother or father, a good brother or sister, that means that I always am doing the right thing and I never get it wrong. So rather than realizing it's about being good, we think we have to be perfect. And so you're either perfect or you're horrible. You're either a success or a failure. And so either you're a good mother or the worst mother. And so if you ever hurt your child, you have this assumption that that means that you are a bad mother. So you have to resist as much as you can against even thinking that's possible, even allowing that to be the truth. And so you'll deny that it happened, unfortunately hurting the person more. So you see this happen that people either deny 
the thing happened at all? Oh, I never said that. What do you know? You're remembering it wrong. I never said that thing you're saying where the person is very sure that you said this hurtful thing, but we deny the truth of what they're saying, which can be very painful, or we deny the impact. Oh, come on. You're just being weak about that or sensitive about that, or you take those things too personally, or other people say so much worse than that and they don't get hurt, but you are being hurt by that because of who you are. So we can't accept that damage was done or that we did some damage. And so we minimize the pain. And if anything, blame the victim, blame the person who we have hurt because it's too hard for us to accept. You know what? Maybe I hurt them and it can be tough. So I don't want to make it seem easy to say everyone should just do this so easily because it's hard for us to accept that because the role means so much to us or the feeling we have of, let's say, being a mother or father can be so strong to be the protector, to be the one that takes care of and nurture this person, this child, and even as they get older, that it can be hard to accept that maybe we have hurt this person. And so we have all these defenses to try to protect ourselves into accepting that. And so this is why at times it will be years, decades, even lifetimes where these things don't get addressed. And so when we think about New Year's goals and New Year's resolutions, I think that could be great. But also we can think of new ways of relating to the people around us and New Year's uh, resolving, not just resolutions, or resolving of problems. Uh, so trying to think of how there's ways we've hurt one another, that we've hurt someone in our lives, and how can I try to apologize to them and take responsibility. Maybe you have guilt about it and you think about it, or maybe you actually have learned to forget what's happened, but maybe the pain you've caused that person is something they haven't forgotten and they're still bleeding from it. They're still hurting from it. And so if you can take that time to reflect on the people in your life and take some vulnerability and some humility to accept that maybe you've done some wrongs and we all have, of course, no one is perfect. And every one of us who's been in any kind of relationships with other people has hurt those people in different ways. Most of the times unintentionally, possibly even intentionally, if we were really angry or mad, but usually it's unintentional, but we've caused damage to people around us. And we have to recognize that it's even worse to deny that we've had that impact or to deny that we've hurt someone than to acknowledge, you know what? I made a mistake there and I'm sorry and ask for that forgiveness. And really, it's holiday season, we're giving lots of gifts, but that's one of the biggest gifts you can give someone is a genuine apology for some way that you have hurt them. And sometimes people think, oh, it was a long time ago. Why should I bring it up? You know, if anything, it might bring up the wound or it might hurt them. And sure, when you bring up something from the past that's painful, there might be emotions that come up, but that doesn't mean that you've hurt them in the process. It could just mean that by looking at the wound, it does bring up some of those painful feelings, that, but those painful feelings are still there. So we, of course, always come up with ways to avoid uncomfortable things, things that don't make us feel so good, and this is one of those things. You'll generally say, oh, there's, what's the point? Things are good. I think they forgot about it anyway. We've moved on. But really, if you can have that uh, humility and then that courage to have that conversation, you'll recognize that really it's one of the greatest gifts you could have given someone, given your loved one, is to recognize the pain and to apologize and acknowledge that. Because as I was saying, the therapist can do so much 
and helping. And oftentimes parents talk about their kids and they want the therapist to help. But really what the parents can do and what we can do in our relationships with the people around us can cause much greater healing than what any one person can do one hour or two hours a week. And so we have to recognize that's our responsibility to give to people what we can in those relationships. And so this might come off in some ways as a cheesy talk about loving one another, but really it is the truth that we can be so much kinder to each other. We can be so much more loving and supportive than we are, each and every one of us. And something to always keep in mind in how we interact with each other. And so I've talked about this before about how the holiday season at times brings out kindness and generosity in people, which is very nice. And you see that, that people want to give to each other. They're a little bit nicer to each other, even in the streets and how they interact and might do some acts of kindness, even randomly for people they don't know. And these are all very nice things uh, that themselves are good. But what can be not so good is that it also points out to how much more kind we can be the rest of the year that we aren't. We're capable of being more kind and loving to each other, but we don't always do it throughout the year. And so if you can be anything in this world, try to be kind, be more loving to one another. Keep in mind that we all are hurting. And really when you hear people's stories, that's actually something I really enjoy about my work. Sometimes people think, oh, you must hear such crazy things. And, you know, as a therapist, you're going to hear crazy stories. And it's probably this fascinating thing. And there's, of course, interesting things that come up in therapy, but that's not really what you experience as a therapist. If anything, what you see is you see how much more every one of us is struggling and is dealing with things, how every individual has pain, has things they've gone through that most of us have no idea about that we don't get to hear about. So actually as a therapist, rather than this bizarre, crazy world that we think we get let into, you get to see people as more human. You get to see humans more clearly and more closely as they start to un, uh, take off those layers and show more what's within them. And you see that there's actually something so beautiful and something so vulnerable that we each have and we each are. And because of that, actually it makes you have more compassion for everyone and want to be more kind to people when you see that side. So sometimes people think, well, you're going to get more annoyed by hearing about all the problems and negative things. And of course you get affected by the people you see and you have to be aware of that. But if anything, it makes you more aware of the pain that even someone who looks totally okay, you know, oftentimes there could be pains in them or there is that you might not know about, or someone who would never show you that they're needing help probably needs help. And so you try to keep that in mind as well. So in, in conclusion for today's show is just thinking about that. How can we be more kind? I know it sounds cheesy even as I'm saying it, but how can I be more kind to those around me? How can I show them more love? Is there a way I can be there for them more? No one really regrets being kind to one another. No one ever says, I wish I wasn't so kind to those people. I wish I didn't give those gifts to these people. I wish I didn't give my time and playing with that child. You'll very rarely, I try not to be extreme and say things in black and white ways, but really you'll never regret being kind to someone. But at times we forget to do that. We can get consumed by things going on in our lives. We can be afraid of getting taken advantage or afraid that, you know, if we're kind, we come off as weak and being nice is being weak in that way. So we shouldn't be that way. And so we hold back or we don't see it happening around us. We think we shouldn't be that way either. But really nothing will make you feel better than being kind and giving to someone else. 
and of course giving people that opportunity to give it to you as well that's the thing that's going to actually make you feel better so next week actually i think we'll be off for a lot of the holidays or the christmas holidays here in the united states and so people will be with family thinking about giving thinking about uh, sharing times with loved ones but i hope we can carry that spirit into the new year remembering that we all have a choice to be kind to one another and hopefully choose kindness whenever we can. All right, we've reached the end of today's show. Let me tell you about the book again. It's Permission to Feel, Unlocking the Power of Emotions to Help Our Kids, Ourselves, and Our Society Thrive by Mark Brackett, Permission to Feel. And as always, please send me your book recommendations. I get a lot of them, and earlier in the new year, uh, probably on the first show of the new year, I'll do my top 10 list for the books of this year of 2019. So look for that. Um, usually what I do is I do the top 10, not based on order, but just chronologically the 10 books that I liked the most out of the ones I read um, this year. But looking forward to continuing that in uh, 2020 as well with the books. So thank you for everyone who sent those recommendations before. Continue sending those my way. I'm always looking for new ones to read. Um, but I think I'll get to do one more show in 2019. So look forward to doing that in about a week and a half. Thank you to Farhuda here in the studio, to the callers and listeners out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful day.